Okay. Um, so I'm going to review just very, very briefly if anyone missed, this is super annoying, uh, if anyone missed last week, I'm just going to give sort of a very, very quick intro to what we're going to be doing in the, definitely in the first bunch of classes in this course. We're going to see it's going to shift and evolve as the course goes on, um, and we're going to address different topics. But we spoke last week, um, we introduced the concept of structuralism or structural anthropology. And we talked really about how um, sort of working within the precept of Shivin Panim La Torah, that there's a myriad of ways, really an unlimited way, um, different approaches that we can use when we're learning Tanakh and specifically when we're trying to approach initially the pshat, right, the original meaning of the text. Um, and we said that one new approach that we wanted to try to use or to start to look at is the anthropological approach. And we talked a little bit about some of the fathers of structuralism. We spoke about Claude Lévi-Strauss, and we spoke, we mentioned a couple of other names, and more names are going to be coming up um, as the course evolves and sort of nuances within the different approaches. Um, but we talked primarily about the way that the human mind, how cognition essentially works. And we talked about the way in which one of the most basic um, you could say things that human beings do, and this is what anthropologists discovered by studying human beings across really the entire globe is to understand that even though the way we work, the way we may worship, the way we may approach the physical world around us, the way some of us employ science while others sort of may not employ it in the same way or may not employ the sort of post-scientific revolution approach to the world, um, but one universal human characteristic is the need to make sense of all of the chaos around us, all of the input, all of the stimuli that we receive. As human beings, our way to make sense of the universe and to understand our place in the universe is to begin to create order out of all of those various stimuli. And we do that in lots of different ways. And as the semester goes on, we're going to talk about different things that we do. Next, uh, next class, we're going to be talking about archetypes and myth. We're going to be talking later on about patterning, how we create patterning. But what we spoke about in the intro to the course, because it's really how the Torah essentially, we said, begins, is talking about binaries. Right? And we looked at the original, the creation story, the Breshit, how the world was created, and we said that if we look closely, no one thing is created right, unless it is distinguished from its opposite. And we talked about how as the human mind works, we always think in binary pairs. We think in light and dark, in cold and hot in um, really in opposites, in oppositional binaries. And we talked a little bit about how everything that happens in Breshid is a reflection of that. What I want to do is I want to move on a little bit, keeping that very, very basic concept in mind, that in order for us to understand anything, it has to be rela in relation to something else. Okay. Now, if everyone can look at their sheets, we're going to take this whole concept um, in a slightly different direction today. I'm going to read you something from Leo Strauss. Uh, who was a, actually not coincidentally, a Jewish um, political philosopher. And he says the following thing on Breshit, and what he's going to do is really address what we spoke about last week, but tell me what additional element he adds in here. Okay, he says as follows. Sorry, is it screeching in your ear? No, oh, it's screeching in my ear. Okay, it seems then that the sequence of creation in the first chapter of the Bible can be stated as follows. From the principle of separation, right? We said the miliman chot are bara and badal. There's no bria without badal. And what's an extension of badal, of distinguishing from something else? What happens as a result of something being distinguished from something else? It gets a name, right? God calls things something when they are distinguished from something else. We only have mayim and shamayim. And it's also considered tov. It means it's fit to its task. That which what it was created to do is now tov. It can now do what it needs to do. And that's why we said we threw out the example. The waters below are not called tov, even though they're distinguished from the shamayim, which get a name on the second day. They're only called tov and only called yamim when they are distinguished from dry land. So the entire act of creation is, in fact, an act of separation. We said tohu vavohu does not mean a vacuum or a void. Tohu vavohu just means disorder, okay? And then he goes on and he says, light via something which separates, heaven to something which is separated, right? Earth and sea, uh, sorry, to things which are productive of, separa of, of separated things, trees, for example. 
Then, things which can separate themselves from their courses. Brutes. What does that mean? He's talking about animals now, right? What does that mean? They can separate themselves from their courses. Think about, for example, the celestial orbs, right? The sun and the moon, right? As far as we know, everything, everything right, sort of moves about, but in a fixed orbit, right? And we hope things don't move beyond their fixed orbit because then we're all in trouble, <laughs> right? Animals are different, right? Animals don't have a fixed orbit, right? They don't have a fixed way of walking. What drives them? Instinct, Instinct or impulse, right? So they're going to follow the scent of food. Now he goes on, and finally, a being which can separate itself from its way, the right way. Who's he talking about here? Okay, so what makes us, so if I smell pizza, I'm going to walk to the pizza store, and if a lion smells a dead rabbit, he's going to walk towards the rabbit. What distinguishes me and the lion? Okay, if I see a person eating that slice of pizza, and I'm starving, and I don't have the money for pizza, I could choose whether or not to beat that person up and steal their piece of pizza. Right, that's called? Free will. free will, and we're going to talk about where that comes from. I repeat, the clue to the first chapter seems to be the fact that the account of the creation consists of two main parts. And sorry, just to go back, meaning animals go based on instinct, so do we, but we can move beyond instinct. My instinct might be to kill someone and steal their slice of pizza, like an animal would. I can choose to overcome that basic bestial instinct. This implies that the created world is conceived to be characterized by a fundamental dualism, things which are different from each other without having the capacity of local motion, and things which, in addition to being different from each other, do have the capacity for local motion. This means the first chapter seems to be based on the assumption that the fundamental dualism is that of distinctness, otherness, as Plato would say, and of local motion. What's he adding here to the concept of binaries? He's talking about what we spoke about. Everything needs to be distinguished from its opposite in order to exist. And then, but he's adding another element in here that we may have noticed when we saw the creation of man, but we may not have paid attention to because we were paying such careful attention to how everything has its binary. Right? And by the way, things can have more than one binary. The opposite of man can be animal or can be God. Right? Things are not always limited to just one opposite. We said the only time they're limited to one opposite is when we reach the, all the way, the end of the spectrum. What's Leo Strauss adding here that we didn't talk about last week? Hmm? There's an implied what in what he's saying? Okay, value system. I'm going to use, let's use an, I mean, you're 100% correct, but we're going to use an anthropological term, which is? We spoke in terms of making sense of things based on how we can conceive of them, binaries, opposites. Cognition is for sure, it's part of it. Huh? Okay, so that's a good word, you're, meaning you're all saying the right thing. Let's use the anthropological term is hierarchy, right? Because again, we're thinking in structures, okay? So what he seems to imply, and again, everything we're going to be saying is all subjective. Right? But based on the Torah is speaking Kilshon B'nai Adam, and the Torah is speaking about an implied hierarchy. And the assumption is, and we're going to talk next week about why some things are top and some are bottom, and some are good and some are bad, right? And we're going to talk about metaphors, right? We say things like, oh, he's at the top of the totem pole. What does that mean? Why isn't he at the bottom of the totem pole, and why isn't that better? Why do we assume up is good and down is bad? We're going to get to that, because it's all the way that our mind works. But he's talking about an implied hierarchy, and the assumption is that who's at the top of that? Okay, why, why do we assume that? Go back inside to the creation of man. He's not making it up. Hashem says as follows. Go back in chapter, Parak Aleph, Pasuk, uh, chapter 1, Pasuk Chafvav, verse 26. Hashem says as follows. And again, we're going to have to... We're going to get to one day when we talk about humans and, and whatever is beyond humans. Hashem is talking to a lot of different things in Breshit, okay, that are not human. We're going to have to address that. We sometimes like to ignore it as monotheists, but we'll have to get there. God says what? And again, we all know now, we know why they're created as one entity, because they don't become 
Ish and Isha until, right, they don't get the name of Isha until Kimi Ishlu Kachazot, okay? But what is Hashem saying here? And then he goes on and he says, I gave you this earth, and your job is to, there's a positive injunction for humanity once we are created, which is? Pru Urvu. Okay, we have to populate the earth, and we have to also, how would you define kivshuha? So I think subdue has almost a, a different connotation than master it, right? We have to master it. Yeah? Um, listen, if dominate means, right, you gain some semblance of control over the universe because now I can anticipate the tides so I can know to tell people to run to shelter and to, before a hurricane. So you can argue that might be to, I think to master, I like master only because I think it's less, um, what? No, not even politically, no, the, the others would say the complete opposite, right? Who are we to master there? I, I think it just has a less um, charged connotation, right? It's talking more in terms of science and technology and less, um, perhaps any other implications, but I could be wrong. Okay, now, for the most part, we always assume that hierarchy is based on what? If I said to you, right, free associate, don't think too much. What makes someone in a hierarchy higher than someone else? You would say? Intelligence. Intelligence. Power. power, right? We usually revert to the assumption that power is what makes us more powerful. And of course, if we think about it, at the end of the day, it's intelligence and not power because a lion is much stronger than me, and yet we go look at animals in the zoo and they don't come watch us in cages, right? So it's clearly not just physical power, but again, how it evolves over the course of centuries is something that we have to think about. Now, hierarchy is very important. Again, we spoke last week about how our basic human need to conceive the world in structures is what enables us to move around in it, right? Because we can see things that we can put them into the patterns in our boxes that we created and that we've inherited. And we're going to talk about collective consciousness. And we talked about how when those structures are undermined or threatened, we get very, very uncomfortable. And we said last week, what's an example of something that threatens a hierarchy, uh, excuse me, threatens a binary? Something in between. Right? I don't know what to do with ghosts because is the person is dead, but then they're not alive, but then there's something in between. I don't know what to do with any paranormal activity that people report because, well, that doesn't fit into a box. I don't know what to do with sickness because it's somewhere between life and death. Any category that can't neatly fit into a box makes human beings very, very uncomfortable. The same is said for hierarchy. Okay? If a hierarchy is undermined or subverted, that makes us very, very nervous. So any good, any movie that you've ever seen, right, classic motif of any movie, is that a person creates either a robot, right, and then what happens? The robot becomes smarter and more intelligent and more powerful than the person that created it. So in theory, the person that created it is more powerful and then this is something he created. But then what happens at the climax of the movie, the robots are running the world and humanity is threatened until, of course, we go back to where we're comfortable. Right? The same goes for animals taking over, whatever the case may be. When hierarchy is undermined, it's something that we have to think about as to why that makes us uncomfortable. Okay, so I'm going to give you a quick example, and I don't want to get too stuck in this parrot because we have to go back to Gan Eden in a minute, but let's just look very carefully for one second at a hierarchy that seems to be undermined, okay? Go to Parak Tet, and again, I'm sticking in the first, like, two, three classes with all the primordial stories because, as we've spoken about, right, and we're going to talk more about this next class, stories that have a mythological uh, sort of nature to them, and again, that does not mean we're going to see next week. We assume myth and fact are or myth and truth are binaries. They're not. We're going to talk about that. But the stories that we know that the Rambam says are sort of stories that communicate truths rather than telling us how things happen chronologically can convey truths that are oftentimes more powerful than any account of reality can ever be. Right? So let's jump to Parakhet and we're going to read something very very interesting. This is just in the aftermath of of the flood. Okay, Noah comes out of the Teva, all the pairs of animals are saved, and he's coming out with his family, and Hashem says as follows. Chapter 10, we're going to start with Pasach Aleph, and then I'm going to jump a little bit in a second. And again, Noah is thought of almost as the second Adam, right? It didn't work the first time around, so now Hashem is starting again, so he's going to say the similar things that he said to Adam HaRishon. 
stuff we already know, we're top of the hierarchy of the food chain. Okay, and then it goes on, anything moving about on the earth, Okay, so initially we were only eating the stuff that grew, and now Hashem is saying, you know what, you're coming out of the teva, this is a new reality, we're going to have to see what's new about it. Now you can eat... Huh? What, sorry? Everything, right? Nothing is off limits for you, okay? But there's a caveat, okay? And we sometimes think that one is that they're all sort of separate condition or separate, I would say, um, charges. But it's all wrapped into one. Look at the connecting words that connect the verses. Ah, except, hold on, be careful. There's a caveat. You cannot eat. Right, you can't have the right, what we call either min You can't grab, rip a, a, a leg off of an animal while it's still living and eat it with its blood. You're also not allowed to kill. And if you do, what is the penalty for murder? Death. We knew we were different from the beginning. What changes here that suddenly we're allowed to eat animal? Because in the first story, the reason that the world was destroyed because there was Hamas in the world. And there was, okay, so in other words, to, that there shouldn't be murder, that there shouldn't be whatever you are now allowed to eat other things. Okay, excellent. What did we just receive here and why? Forget the specifics of the right to eat animal. What did Hashem just say? Shofich dam ha'adam ba'adam damo yishafich is the very first what? Law. Right? In the beginning, okay, so that's our, that's our, our, what we need to do in this. This is the very first law that God is giving humanity. Why is Hashem giving us a law now? Huh? Okay, so we can understand him. What else? And again, think less in terms of how did it happen, A, B, C. Look at what truth is Hashem communicating to us by talking about a world that devolved into Hamas, and then a world. Okay, so excellent, but we're already jumping to part B. Hashem took humanity and he said, here, go, do whatever you want. I'm going to give you nishmat chayim, I'm going to give you tzel melokim, and bechirat hafshit, and everything else that the human experience entails, go out into the world. Well, what happened when we went out into the world and we started filling the earth? Hamas, why? Because? Because we don't have law. And so when Noah comes out of the Teva, Hashem says, life under law is the only way that I can guarantee that I will not, it will not get to a point where I need to destroy you all again. So here's life under law. Now that we have law, what does that mean? There's right and wrong. It means that I may want to take the leg of an animal, but I am not allowed to. And so once I start exerting self-control, go back to what Leo Strauss said, now I am actualizing the hierarchy that was implicit in creation to begin with. Hashem created some of them by themselves, some of us with Selim Elohim, but until we utilize that Selim Elohim and control our desires or control our instincts, only then are we actualizing the hierarchy. Once we have a hierarchy, well now 
it makes sense that we're allowed to eat them. We can only eat animals when we don't act like them, is basically what the Torah is saying. Yes? Didn't God try the Sanhedrin and the Asa No. So, I mean, not no. In the reading that we're utilizing, meaning in the approach that we're going to be using, I don't, I think in Gan Eden we actually did not yet have, we're, you know what, hold that up because we're going to get back to it in 10 seconds. So hold that. We have to be very, very, our reading of Gan Eden, whether we admit it or not, has been so heavily influenced by notion of cardinal sin and fall from grace and so heavy, heavy, heavy Christological motifs that we, we, we're, we sometimes get lost in that. Again, it's not, we're going to see in two seconds. Okay, yeah. Yeah, correct. So there was punishment in a different way. Punishment, punishment. I will say, um, I was debating if we're going to do, do Kain and Hevel. I'm not sure because for those of you that were in my class like two or three years ago, we, we dealt with it, not from this approach. But um, I will say the what happens with Kain is less a punishment and more a result, a breach of the relationship between man and the earth. Right? Hashem doesn't say, Kayin, you terrible person, now I'm going to make you suffer. It says, right? The earth had to absorb the blood of your brother. He's really mad at you. So it's not going to produce for you. So that was almost, it's almost as if to say, and this is a topic for a separate time, that the relationship between man and the land is a very dynamic relationship. It wasn't a punishment from Hashem. Correct. It's law. Okay, so excellent. So hold the notion of punishment, okay, because that's going to tap into the hierarchy that's undermined, and it's going to answer why it bothers us that the hierarchy is undermined. Yeah. You know, getting back to the Eitz business, that was just for one single person. It wasn't for civilization. Um, yes and no. I would say man is the prototypical human, right? Or male and female are the prototypical human beings. That's the whole but point of the story. civilization wasn't Correct, then why not? So that's what we're going to get back to. Okay, so just hold on and then for 10 more seconds, let's just look at a hierarchy that's undermined that we don't think is such a big deal, but it seems it's a really, really big deal. Okay, go back down to, we're skipping over. Hashem makes a beautiful rainbow, and Hashem shows us that, right, that he promises that it's never going to happen again. And by the way, that's really important, because if you can't bank on the continuity of human existence beyond today, there's no reason to follow law. Right? We don't build healthy, vibrant, lawful societies just for the today or for our short lifespan. In theory, we're building a vibrant society for our children and everyone that comes after us. If I think that tomorrow it could all be washed out with a tsunami, then it's not, there's not going to be a lot of incentive to behave. Okay, so Hashem makes a rainbow and he promises that nothing is going to happen. He'll never do something that grand in scale ever again. And then jump down to Pasuk Yilcha and he says as follows. It's naming the three children, and from them came everyone. Noach plants a vineyard. And we are not judging whether or not he should or shouldn't have gotten drunk. We're focusing on the hierarchy for a second. He got naked in his own tent. Now, nakedness is always a euphemism, right, for many things. Arayot, right? Ligalot ervat avicha is a very serious crime. Later on, we're going to get to that in the halachot of arayot, which are very important for anthropologists. But even if we don't read into the euphemism, like the midrashim do, okay, let's just argue he got naked, but by definition, lying there naked in his tent is what? not just stripping him of his clothes, it's stripping him of his dignity, dignity and then by definition, hierarchy, because it goes father, child in a patriarchal world. So who's the bad guy in the story? Why? Hmm? Yeah, you said it. What did you say? Because he didn't, by definition, and again, we could read this a million ways. We have our anthropological hats on. Because he didn't respect the hierarchy. Why is hierarchy important? This, this, this does not come in a vacuum, this little episode. 
right? This is one of those times where we say, oh, he inverted the hierarchy. That's a really, really big problem. But why is the inversion of that hierarchy problematic? Because sometimes, and we're going to see when we get later onto other episodes in Tanakh, actually subverting hierarchy is a positive thing. And there are times where God intentionally says that a hierarchy needs to be undermined. Here, it's very clear that it's the wrong thing to do. Why? It's a certain kind of death that he imposed on his Okay, so his status was undermined, and there, why is that a problem? Go back to what's at the beginning of the parak. We are now trying to build society that is ordered. lawful and ordered. What do you need with, when you have law? You can't just have law as a theoretical. What do you need? Law enforcers. Right? You said the word chaya, you said the word punishment, that that's so critical. It's important because that's a way of enforcing law. Right? If you don't do it, there are going to be consequences. And so here, right after we have law, we have, these, we have the hierarchy of patriarchy undermined, and the Torah tells us that is not okay. okay. Yeah? But, um, we have just gotten these, these two laws, right? About One law. Oh, uh, yeah, two laws. Sorry, yeah. Everything a high and not, not killing other people. But, uh, but we didn't have, or I don't think we were given laws about, um, you know, uh, erva and stuff like that. What, what, how did no, there's no erva. There's no isor of erva here. So how did he know? I don't understand exactly why this was an undermining. So again, we can ask with all of these, right, with anything that happens in Brishi. We say, well, how is Kain supposed to know that he's not supposed to kill if Hashem never said he's supposed to? Those are all questions that when we, we get bogged down, when we think of them very literally and very sort of in a linear fashion. That's not these. It's not about, well, should he have known? Was there a way for him to know? Did Noah ever communicate? And if Noah didn't have... What we're saying is the Torah is giving us this like bizarre little episode in the middle of, of the origins of humanity. God feels that this, these four psukim seem to be really, really critical. So we're not asking coulda, shoulda, woulda, how, why. What we're saying is what is Hashem telling us through this episode? And through these tiny little enigmatic psukim, Hashem is saying the hierarchy what, what we're, is later going to evolve into keep it up at aim, right? But right now, in its most basic terminology, we have binaries and we have hierarchy, and those hierarchies need to be respected, right? And, for, and here, we know why, at least. Yeah? And also, the opposite reaction was the brothers covering him up. So Correct. what happened was not perceived as being good, because they not only cover him up, and they walk in backwards to not see the Correct. Correct. And listen, what you're, what you're both saying really taps into a much, much bigger question, which I am not a philosopher, so I'm not touching, right? But is morality an intuitive thing? Is there something innate about morality and ethics, or is it learned behavior? I have no idea, right? Then you need to go to a philosophy class for that. But you could argue, right, based on this pasuk, that perhaps the Tanakh is saying that there is something innate about that relation, whatever you want to call it, whether it's respect, whether it's shame, whatever the case may be, perhaps you can argue that here. Yeah? But here you have the reaction of two brothers with the same father, mm -hmm. and one does nothing, ignores, and that was the wrong thing, and the other one protects his father. So so it's, there, there's no, that's the difference, or that that's the, the result of having free will, that, that people react to. Correct. Correct, but Tanakh is all right. The Tanakh, on the one hand, says you have free will. Tanakh also says that free will needs to be harnessed. Right? We don't necessarily like, right. Subjective morality is not something the Tanakh is all about. Tanakh is saying yes, you have free will, and you may have right an inclin or an awareness, an internal moral compass, whatever you want to call it. But the Tanakh is also very clear that law is divine. Right? Which is one of the things, by the way, that makes monotheism unique. We love to imagine that like, we were these wonderful, lawful people, and everyone around us, the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians, were all these crazy animals that they had very rigid, lawful societies. Right? Hammurabi's code was one. Forget Hammurabi's code. The Egyptian code about how to treat a widow and an orphan were some of the most beautiful articulations of how to take care of the vulnerable in society. Right? We are not unique in our sympathy or in our morality. One of the things, one of the things that makes us unique is that we say Hashem gave us this law, right? It's divine. It wasn't made up by Hammurabi, who was elected by Marduk to, to create civic order. Okay, let's go back to Gan Eden. Yeah? I don't know if this, this question might, like, be bad, because it just like it to the things that you said that you don't want to go. But, like, if you... Guys, that's a binary we never use. We don't have bad or good questions. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of binary is that? <laughs> okay, there you go. 
consumption of stuff and not overeating animals, why do you need to specify Ibrahim and Kahai? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, I think it all comes together. I think it's all coming hands in hands. It's, you, you cannot, you now can eat animals. You can't rip, it's, it's just part and parcel. It's like anything, right? Anytime you give someone the right to do something, it comes with, I will give you keys to the car, you can never drive drunk. Right? You have the right to do something, but there are stipulations. Okay. That's with every every law. Right? Everything we're gonna encounter. Or not every law, but many, many laws that we're gonna encounter. Many things. Hashem utters us and tells us that we can do this and we can't do this. We don't know why. Correct. It's just a law. Correct. That's also true. That's also true. Right. But I but I think what you're asking is why does it come hand in hand if there was no precedent <laughs> for it? I think that's with everything, right? Anytime you give someone the right or access to something, it comes with with um, sort of stipulations. Okay, what? Conditions. Conditions. Okay, let's get back into the garden for one second. And now I'm, I'm going to apologize at the outset because there's going to be a lot. I, we could sit and talk about Gan Eden, literally, for an entire course. Okay, we could easily come up with 30 different approaches to the Gan Eden story. So if a lot of questions come up now, I'm going to say shelf it and I'll talk to you right after class. Only because we're choosing today, there's no way to answer every single question and it is Right, you open up the Mikra Okudolo, you could have 15 pages of medieval parshanut just on these psukim alone. Today we're putting on our anthropological hats, okay? Which means we're not talking about cardinal sin, we're not talking about whether or not there was Bikirah of We're not gonna ask, well, why did Hashem put the tree there if they were never supposed to eat from it? Because then was he tricking them? And if he was tricking them, we're not asking any of those questions. We're gonna what I want you to look for in this Gun Eden story, okay, is what very important binary is being introduced. Right, because think about it, this is one of the first stories, so it's one of the most right, critical for us to know what binary is being introduced, what about the human experience is the Tanakh unequivocal about, okay? So let's go inside, and we're going to start with Pasuk Dalit in Parak Bet, chapter, hold on, sorry, moving that, and I'll move further away, okay. Chapter 2, verse 4. Here we go. God created the heavens and the earth. And now, the Tanakh is almost cluing us in. We're getting a terrestrial perspective. Now you're going to see it from Eretz Vishamayim. And again, I'm, I'm going to do stuff very unfairly to you superficially. But basically the Tanakh is saying the world had all of this latent potential that was not yet being actualized because man was not yet interacting with his environment in the way that he was created to interact with it. Okay? The Adyal land, then it goes on and it talks about how a river was streaming up so that it could it could give it could uh, sort of nourish the earth by Adam, Afar and later on when we get back, hopefully we're going to have time for this towards the end of the semester, about the Greek dualistic approach, for example, to body and soul, right? The two parts of our being that are in constant combat. Tanakh doesn't present us as in constant combat. We are one, right, sort of whole being. We are need of the earth. And we also have nishmat chayim. adam nefesh chaya, and that's what animated us. Now Hashem creates this being, okay? Oh, excuse me, Hashem creates this garden. He plants a garden in Eden. Eden, the area, it's not called Gan Eden. It's a garden in the vicinity, in the area of Eden. He puts man into the garden. When we get to the topic of center and periphery, we're not going to revisit Gan Eden, but please remember, we were not, if this is the center in the story, we weren't created in the center, we were created in the periphery. Okay, kind of like... Avraham, outside of the land. There's this one tree that structurally, if we're looking at it, is in the center, right? That's going to grab our attention. Which tree is that? right? Look inside. What, which one is in the center? We don't know where that is, okay? The Nahar you would say, and then it goes on and lists all the different rivers that came out and which ones came, and some of this is geographically, you know, sort of realistic, and some of it is, again, cluing us into different things Hashem wants us to know. And then it says in verse, 20, in verse 15, Pasuk Tetva, 
ויניחהו בגן עדן לעבדה ולשמרה. Now Hashem puts us into Gan Eden to keep it and to till it. ויצב השם וכמה האדם לאמור. מכל איתה גן אכול תאכל, ומאיתה דת טוב ורע, לא תאכל ממנו, כי ביום אכלך ממנו מות תמות. The day you eat from it, you're going to die. Now, the obvious question that everyone should ask is, he doesn't. He lives for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, ostensibly, after it. It doesn't mean I feel bad for him. It's not a nice, it means tov. Man alone cannot do what he was meant to do. Why? What's he meant to do? So let me make him an ezer kinegdo. Let me make him his binary opposition. And now again in this sort of hypothetical description, right? Hashem brings every animal before Adam, and what does Adam do to each animal? He gives it a name, which is his way of... Correct. In ninth grade biology, you have to memorize, right, binomial nomenclature, right? What's the difference between the different... That's what Adam is doing because he's classifying... The an or the different beings based on their characteristics, right? This is maybe pre-Darwin even. Okay, and then it goes on and he says, Once he understood what each being was, once they each had their name, there was no fitting binary opposite for him. And we're not going to get into male-female. I think we did, we did this very much in depth when we did my women course. Um, I want to be clear about one thing, even though I'm not going to expand on it today. The biggest mistaken notion about, well, not the biggest, there's a lot of big mistaken notions that but personally what I feel, um, one of the most important mistaken notions that people have about Tanakh, because for so long the Tanakh was read through this lens, is that Tanakh assumes there is a hierarchy between male and female. It is most certainly, at least based on how I understand Tanakh, not the case at all. Tanakh is very much a gender neutral text. There is subordination in a cultural sense. There is never an expectation or an assumption of inferiority, which is very different than a construct. There is no innate inferiority between male and female, but we can't address it today. Yeah? But is it helpful by definition? No. That's why we need to look at, we use, in modern terminology, yes. La'azor means to help, but we need to go back, right? That's what we would do. Maybe one yomiyan, we'll revisit the topic, right? You have to look back at what the word ezer means and how it's used. Hashem is understood as an ezer sometimes to human beings, right? So God, we use the word azar in the context of God and humans. We can't assume there's an inferior, superior hierarchy there, right? Okay. Um, Wait, just a question about the Gan Eden when you read all those Shulkim, whatever, about describing that God, God made this garden about why my reaction is no, is there something about the syntax that would make me think no? No. They I mean and, the tree of... <coughs> no, because it, no, it's a quality. No, it would say et ha-chayim v'da'at tovara. You can't, it's eights and eights. But it, it sounds almost like... No, actually no, I'll tell you why also when we get to that. No, it can't be that. Okay, uh, with, sorry. With Ezer, if you go by the, the two letter Shoresh, you have always strength, and that's giving a strength when you're there, you're giving strength. Yeah, but you could still see that as offensive, but it's not, but, okay. No, it can't be because later God says, you eat from the of that, I can't let you take the chance. Okay, excellent, correct. Okay, excellent. So here we go. We're going to go back inside. But even right? And then, of course, Adam um, says, right? Finally, now she has a name, and now now I have a name as well, and etc. etc. Let's go back into, let's jump into the garden. There was no shame, which implies no self-consciousness, right? Babies are not ashamed of walking around naked around the house. 
right? And then there comes an age where they're like, oh, I guess if people are coming in, I should probably put on underwear. And then maybe I'm speaking from personal experience. Um, and then there comes in, right? They, they sort of develop psychologically until you get to a point of self-consciousness. And then it sort of peaks when they're teenagers and it's sort of out of, right? Their, their self-consciousness is almost over where it should be. And they think, and then we hope we get to a point of equilibrium at some point. Actually, sorry, go back one second. No, loifoshashu means what? They were not, they were naked, but why would they be self-conscious in front of the other? They were one person. No, no, they were separated by now. Yeah, but, but they still felt one. Okay, or? There's no hierarchy, there are Think more in terms of like children developing. There's a point where you could bathe your niece and nephew to get right in your niece with your son. And then there gets to a point where you can't anymore because they're older and they realize they are different. Okay? But realizing difference is also important for truer vu. Okay? So if they're naked below you to shashu, then something's not yet working. Okay. Wait, so they were not aware that they were different? That's what it would seem, right? They were not self-conscious. There was no shame. As soon as they eat from it, they're going to be shameful. We're going to let's read through. Now, no, 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 snake, you got it wrong. He didn't say we can't eat from any trees. He said we just can't eat from this one. He said we can eat from everything, but we right? Just not that one, not the one that Hashem said no. You're not going to die. God knows that when you eat from Eitzadat Tovara, Kelohim. Yod a to bara. Why does God not want you to eat from the tree? You can't be like him, knowing to bara. And again, I'm not going to get into it now just because in the interest of time, it's not like a magical fruit where she bites and all of a sudden, ah, she all the whole process of her looking and assessing and reflecting and is this something I want to do? Is it is already the integration or the actualization of the human ability to think. Right? The, I saw actually a very great, a perfect line. The eating of the fruit only ratified all the psukim that came before it. The dialogue with the nachash is not something a bunny rabbit can have. It's only in theory. It's not something a snake can have either. We can talk about that a different time. But it's, not something, it's only something a human being can have, that sort of reflective dialogue. Okay? It's not a magical fruit. Okay? So she eats from the fruit, and then she gives it to Adam. Pasuk zayin v'atipakachna. They make loincloths to cover up that which made them different. They don't necessarily cover their shoulders or their head. They cover up that which makes each one distinctly male and female. God had been there the whole time. Mitalech is a constant verb. Right? It's not a one time he took a walk with him. He was always walk. Hashem was there. All of a sudden, they were aware of him. Because the awareness that comes with being human is an awareness of self that animals don't have. Right? Humans recognize themselves in mirrors. Animals may or may not. An awareness of other and an awareness of something other than human. So they hide. Well, now the jury has been. What? What did Adam just do? No, he didn't lie. He told the truth. He just implicated himself. <laughs> oh, God, I'm so sorry. I hid because I was naked and I was embarrassed of you. Uh, and then Hashem says, Vayomer Adam, Mihigit lecha ki Romata, 
Why would you be, have any self-consciousness if there weren't that whole process of the acquisition or the realization of knowledge? Okay, we're not going to get into the whole distinction, but essentially what happens are not curses necessarily or punishments, but it's what we call an etiology, an explanation as to why the relationship between man and land is what it is, why the relationship between male-female and the human and the animal kingdom, but we'll have to shelf it for a separate time. Yeah? So what was the status of Adam and Chava's cognition and or mental abilities before they ate it? If we looked at it and we really read through it, and again, I, I apologize that I'm sort of rushing because we have to get to the binary. I would say something more childlike, right? Almost, right? It's, and think you can actually, right? If a psychologist were to read this parak, right? A child psychologist and, and track the sort of um, development of the mind of a child, there's, right? First, they're sort of parallel play. They don't really know the other one is there. And then they start interacting with each other. And then the Nachash calls Chava's set of beliefs or assumptions into question, which is what happens a little when we're teenagers, for example, right? And then she has to respond to it, but then she's not sure about her assumptions anymore, and so she's questioning who she is and what she believes. If we track it like that, it's essentially, right, the development from non-intelligent to fully intelligent beings. But with intelligence comes the full gamut of the human experience, which includes suffering and toil and everything else that we're going to put on the side for now. Okay, I'm going to hold questions just for two seconds because we have to get to two more really important things. And if I don't answer your question in class, um, I promise I'll get to you after. Okay, the snake gets a very, very bad rap. Why? Why? Did he lie? It says he was so sneaky. Did he say any one thing that was not true? Go to the very end of the parak. Adam and Chava are kicked out of the garden or, or exiled from the garden. And now look at what it says as follows, okay? End of Perak Gimel. Hashem says, first Hashem makes them better clothing, right? Sort of the, which is another thing, right? Punishment by God is always sort of softened, right? Hashem kicks them out, but he gives them better quality clothes before he does that. No, for real, no Vayomer Hashem Elohim. Hein Hadam Haya. Go look back at what the Nachash says. Literally, almost word for word. Hashem is now speaking again to whoever it is he's speaking to, we're going to have to see. And he says, uh-oh, now that man has, he's going to be like one of us. Is that a problem? Does God not want us to be have dat tovara? He wants us to have dat tovara, or he wouldn't have given us, we wouldn't have been created, but Selim Elohim. He created humans as distinct from animals in theory because we are intelligent. So then what's the problem? The Nachash didn't lie, he was just missing the picture. God doesn't want us to not know things or understand, but it says, Hein hadam tovara And now that he understands things, one, the most pressing um, drive of human beings from the beginning of history is the desire to live forever, to outrun death, right? Immortality is at the crux of so many fairy tales and mythology. And Hashem is saying, it's, he's not saying, I'm kicking you out of the garden and sending you back to a place where you don't have dat tovara. If we don't have dat tovara, we can't do puravu, we can't work the earth. Hashem is saying, now that you have dat tovara, you are going to understand that you will want to live forever. Right? Animals try to outrun predators because they have an instinct to survive for survival of the species. They don't reflect on the meaning of life. Now that we have the ability to do that, we're going to want to reach for a tachayim. That cannot happen. Why? He's blocking off the ability, and the kruvim, by the way, 
in Tanakh we're going to see are always, right? They're like the gargoyles. They protect between realms, right? Between the Kodesh and the Kodesh Kodashim, between what's in the Kodesh Kodashim and the Aron, between Shlomo's chair and the masses. Okay? The Kruvim protect realms that are off limits to everyone. Inside Gan Eden is eternal life. Outside of Gan Eden is, and we are not allowed back in Gan Eden. Hashem's problem is not with us having Da'at Tovara. Hashem is saying, and this is the binary, what? Mortality, well, life and death, or mortality and immortality. Okay, now what I want, yeah. Um, you know what, actually, what time is it? No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be super rude and just ask you to hold with questions just for a few, few minutes. Okay, now, very important, what I want to do is I want to give you an example. Okay, because here Hashem seems to make pretty clear. Mortality and immortality and the twain shall never meet. Okay, is there ever a time, what I want to do now is sort of look at an example where that's called into question. The Tanakh kind of answers it, but because it's left somewhat enigmatic, what I draw for you here are examples of how Early Jewish interpreters wrestle. Wait, don't look at your sheets yet. Where do we have a case where the question of mortality and immortality is sort of called into question? Okay, excellent. Well, now because you well look, Book of Enoch. Okay, two times. Okay, Hanoch, but you're not supposed to know that yet. Okay, here we go. Everyone go to Perek. Ah, okay, excellent. Eliyahu is going to take up so much space in Jewish tradition, and we're going to get to this, because what is he? Did he die? Did he not die? And if he didn't die, then he keeps coming back, he keeps coming back in Jewish <laughs> tradition because he's that person that is that liminal, fills that liminal space between life and death. Everyone else we know died. Eliyahu just kind of went up in... So what do we do with that? So that's why Eliyahu becomes what he becomes in Jewish lore, right? For that very reason. Okay, let's just go back inside for one second, though. Um, we're going to start with, go to Parakei, okay, Pasuk Yurchet, and we're going to see, there's the first, and I'm combining these two because in, Jew, in early Jewish interpretation, the two stories become um, somewhat, not conflated, but they, they get connected in the, in the, in the literature. Okay, Parakei Pasuk Yurchet. Or we'll start even a couple of psukim earlier so you realize why this pasuk is weird. Okay, start with pasuk tetva, for example. This is the genealogies of all the people that lived between, right, first we have from Adam to Noach, and then Noach to Abraham, and why we have genealogies in Tanakh is a whole separate important discussion. Pasuk tetva. So there's a nice little structure we have here. How long they lived, then when they had kids, what one the first son's name is, and then how many years they lived after giving birth to children, and then how many subtotal. Okay. Okay, what? That's not part of the pattern. What's it saying? He walked with God. What does that mean? And now close your eyes. What do you expect to hear? Okay, I'm sorry. What do I do with that? Okay. This is not, this doesn't fit into my schema. This doesn't fit into people born and then they have children. At, well, what just happened here? I don't know what means and I certainly don't know what it means that God sort of took him. Where's the vayamot? Okay, so that's the first within all these important things that Breshid is telling us. Well, then, who are you, Hanoch, and why are you breaking those rules? Or what? No, Noah also. And there's a couple of others also, but the Italich Imalokim, and that's why we're going to see it becomes translated the way it does. But I think the bigger problem is that it doesn't say Vayamot. 
Right? Now, it wouldn't be a problem. Let's say I wasn't in the middle of this genealogy. And it just said, oh, and then Hashem took him. So Rashi would say, that means he died. It's just a nice way of saying it. But if it's in the middle of vayamot, 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 so then it can't be that. Okay? Okay, that's the first little what the heck is going on here. Jump to the next parak. Okay, another, I would say, perhaps one of the most enigmatic episodes in Tanakh, says as follows. Okay? Pasakalif, Parakbab. Vayihike hechel hadam larov al pnei hadama, uvanot yul dulahem. Look, man is doing, right? Humanity is doing what it's supposed to be doing. Vayir ubnei haelohim et binot hadam. Okay, who B'nai HaElohim are, we do not know, okay, but they're certainly not humans. They see B'nota Adam Ki and look, they're beautiful. Lahem Nashim Mikola Bacharu. So they ostensibly, and I'm now super, they go down, but we don't even have to assume that. Let's say they were superhuman beings roaming the earth and they saw women. Vayomer Hashem, and now Hashem steps in and he says, Lo Yadom Ruchi Ba'adam Le'olam B'Shagam Hu Basar. What does that mean? As long as he's made of flesh, my spirit will not, cannot abide in him eternally. Okay. Right? So Hashem gives a life, a, a cap on human longevity. Okay, we're going to ignore for now the very important question that a lot of people live beyond 120 until Moshe who sort of sets the bar, but we're going to ignore that for now. So the out, whatever came from this union, were nifilim, the aldulahem hima hagiborim, asher meolam anshei hashem. Okay, someone want to tell me what just happened? <laughs> okay, so there's, it goes without saying, hundreds and hundreds of different, not hundreds, but tens of different ways to read these stories. What does that mean, Nephilim? What are Giborim? What are Anshei Hashem? Who are B'nai HaElohim? And there are some of the most literalist approaches, and there are some of the most fanciful and spiritual and Kabbalistic approaches. What I want to do is look at, okay, not to get at what is actually happening here, because we're not going to, that's beyond today, or ever, um, but what I want to do is give you an example of what we spoke about last week, which is, when we understand the world based on the rules, and then something breaks those rules. So that's, that combined with sort of ellipses or enigmatic material is fodder for interpretation and expansion. Okay? So one of the things that I want to show you, and again, I'm showing it to you just because it's such a cool example, is the Book of Enoch. Okay? And by the way, a lot of times in these classes, when I talk about how things were not fully addressed in Tanakh or left open and left people confused, I'm going to be using a lot of Second Temple interpretations, mostly because um, I think people are not exposed to it enough. I've spoken about this in some of my other classes. We have this impression that the Tanakh ends, right, in let's say whenever the last works of Tanakh were being compiled, let's say as late as the second century BCE, which is late. Right? And then we imagine, and then there's this perfect continuum to the Mishnah and the Gemara. The Mishnah and the Gemara, we're skipping over hundreds of years of not just Jewish interpretation, but Jews wrestling with really important questions that ended up defining, right? Rabbinic Judaism is an outgrowth of, or an answer to, all of the really important questions Jews were asking in the late last few centuries of the Common Era. Okay, when we were under the reign of the Greeks and then of the Romans and then dealing with early Christianity and everything else. So part of my little uh, polemic here is that we need to bring Second Temple works back in. And again, they were out of, they were out of circulation, so to speak, for thousands of years because we just didn't have access to them. And then once we discovered the Cairo Geniza and once we discovered, it goes without saying, the Dead Sea Scrolls, all of a sudden we have a window into centuries of Jewish thought and creativity and interpretation, and it's just chaval not to learn it. So that's my, that's my soapbox. I'll get back down. Let's look at Wisdom of Solomon. Um, what happens with Chanukh is as follows. Two things come out of Prakin Hay and Vav here. Okay? First, Chanukh becomes this mythical figure. Okay? I'll give you one example from Wisdom of Solomon, which was probably written in the late last two centuries of the common, of the, excuse me, of, uh, before the Common Era. 
And the wisdom of Solomon says as follows. They ta they're talking about Hanukkah. Wisdom of Solomon is not written by Shlomo, it goes without saying, but it's what we call a pseudo-epigraphic work, which means a lot of the Second Temple writers, to give themselves a little gravitas, use names of people from Tanakh, to, so who better to use if you're writing a wisdom book than the wisest? No, we don't. Some people say that it was actually, uh, most of the authors of these books we do not know, and a lot of the books ended up being compiled into a book, but it was actually probably a bunch of authors. But what did you call it pseudo? Pseudo-epigraphic, meaning like an epigraph, but pseudo from, from fake. There were some who pleased God and were loved by him, and while living among sinners were taken up, they were caught up so that evil might not change their understanding or guile deceive their souls for the fascination of wickedness obscures what is good, and roving desire perverts the innocent mind. Okay, so this is, they're not, they're taking this pasuk, and who is Hanoch, and they're saying, why did Hashem take him? Because So that he didn't fall prey to all of the horrible influences. Now get into the mind of a Jew who is writing about how to remain righteous in a primarily Hellenistic world, and what they're doing is they're taking this personality, who's so enigmatic, and using him as sort of the person to look to for, look how hard it is to steer clear of evil and evil ways and all the bad things. How lucky was Hanoch that Hashem took him so that he didn't have to deal with those challenges. We have to deal with them. So here's this book of wisdom to help us understand how to best steer clear of Hellenism and all these other horrible things that we have to deal with. Okay? So it's a beautiful example of how things left open or, or sort of strange in Tanakh become a place for this. Okay, we're going to finish with the last two of these paragraphs from the Book of Enoch. Okay, now the Book of Enoch also was probably written by a number of different authors over really a number of at least decades. Okay, but what's fascinating about it is that it has all of these, um, it's based on this notion that when Hanukh went up, right, what the Torah is telling us, we don't know what that was. So according to Second Temple Jews, Hanukh went up to the heavens where he saw all the secrets of not just the world and the earth, he sort of had a godly perspective, and he also saw what's happening in the end of days, because don't forget, when stuff was really bad in the second late Second Temple period, what movement starts to grow? Messianism, right? End of days, right? If the world down here is just too terrible, we come up with messianism, we come up with end of days, we come up with eschatology, right? The forces of evil fighting the forces of goodness, and of course the forces of goodness win, right? So these are all things that, ha that start moving when the world is just too depressing. So here we go. The book of Enoch is describing one of the things he saw, okay? And tell me what they're doing here with this, with this Perak and Breshi. And it came to pass when the sons of men had increased, that in those days they were born to them fair and beautiful daughters. And the angels, the sons of heaven, saw them and desired them. And they said to one another, Come, let us choose for ourselves wives from the children of men, and let us beget for ourselves children. And Semyaza, who was their leader, said to them, I fear that you may not wish this deed to be done, and that I alone will pay for this great sin. And they all answered him and said, Let us all swear an oath and bind one another with curses, not to alter this plan, but to carry out this plan effectively. Right? So there's also, and again, if we were to study these texts in the context of what was going on, right, the fear of peer pressure, of movements, of sectarianism, right, that someone has an idea and pulls other along with it. Then they all swore together and all bound one another with curses to it. And then they were, and they were in all 200, and they came down on Ardis, which is the summit of Mount Hermon, which is going to kill everyone's Hanukkah vacation now. And they called the mountain Hermon because on it they swore and bound one another with curses. And these are the names of the leaders. And then it goes on and it lists all the different... And for those of you who were in my Daniel class last year, you'll remember that names in Tanakh, we just have Malachim. What do we start having in Second Temple period? What does Daniel encounter for the, one of the only books in Tanakh where we have? Names of angels, right? It's okay because Michael or Gabriel, we start naming angels in the Second Temple period. Tanakh does not name any angels, okay? That's also very, very important sort of development in Jewish thought. And they took wives for themselves, and everyone chose for himself one each. And they began to go into them and were promiscuous with them, and they taught them charms and spells and showed to them the cutting of roots and trees. And they became pregnant and bore large giants, and their height was 3,000 cubits. These devoured all the toil of men, 
until men were unable to sustain them, and the giants turned against them in order to, deve to devour men. So if we were talking metaphor, and we're going to talk next week about myth, right? Break this down. What are they articulating? When a child says they have a dream about a monster, so we all know enough to say, oh, I wonder what that monster represents. What is my child scared of, right? Here, what's happening? the more powerful empire, right, that's taking over these innocent men, and by the way, not just taking over the men, taking over the women, which is always a fear from the beginning of Tanakh. These devoured all the toil of men until men were unable to sustain them, and the giants turned against them in order to devour men. And they began to sin against birds and against animals and against reptiles and against fish. And for those of you who are wondering where the source that before the flood, the Hamas is defined as bestiality, this is probably one of the earliest sources for that, right? A lot, many, many, many midrashim are based on some of the earliest Second Temple works. And it's cool because we discovered them after we all knew the midrashim, and then we're like, oh, that's where it came from. Um, and they began to sin against birds and against animals and against reptiles and against fish, and they devoured one another's <coughs> flesh and drank blood from it. Then the earth complained about the lawless ones. Well, look at all the things we get after the flood to prevent all the stuff that they're saying they did. And Azazel, by the way, you know that name from? Seirla Azazel, because it was also in ancient Near Eastern mythology, one of the proper names of the devil, okay? In Tanakh, it's not the devil. It just is the, is the animal that we, that we get rid of. And Azazel taught men to make swords and daggers and shields and breastplates. And he showed them the things after these, and the art of making them bracelets and ornaments, and the art of making up the eyes of beautiful eyelids. This is a very Greco-Roman fear of what? Women's seduction, okay? You don't have Tanakh afraid of women seducing men. That's not a fear, and that's definitely not what Chava does either. It is a very Greco-Roman sort of stereotype of the dangers of seductive women. Okay, It is not a biblical fear at all. And the most precious choice stones and all kinds of colored dyes in the world was changed. And there was a great impiety and much fornication, and they went astray. And all their ways became corrupt. Amezarach taught all those who cast spells and cut roots. Armaros, the release of spells, and Barakel, astrologers, etc., etc. All it's listing now all of those things that were not allowed to do, right? To engage in magic and spells and witchcraft and all these other things. And at the destruction of men, they cried out, and their voices reached heaven. Okay? And of course, their voices reach heaven just like what? Just like the cries of people in Tanakh always do, Vayan Chubene Israel, right? Vayishma Hashem et Nakatam, etc., etc. And then what happens? Well, this was the, flood. the flood. Okay. Again, this is not. We're not explaining here what paragraph means. We're not going to be able to do that today. But what we're seeing is how episodes that a call into question the structures that we sort of develop, and that the Tanakh says are structures by which human beings are going to understand and make sense of the universe. Things that call those structures into question. Okay end up becoming fodder for interpretations and ways in which people, and this is what interpretation by definition always is, we superimpose the most, the deepest concerns that we have, right? I don't know what to do with the Roman Empire. And we superimpose them onto texts, and we start to understand the text in the sort of based on our concerns, our context, our needs, etc., etc., and we create meaning from the text to answer those pressing needs. That's what Midrash is, that's what biblical interpretation is. But again, it's a great example to see how when things break the structures, so they become the, the sort of ground for, for all this sort of interpretation. So we will stop there. Um, have a wonderful, wonderful week. Shabbat Shalom.